Almighty God, uh, we are grateful and thankful to you for this day, Lord, and thankful that we get to come together at the beginning of the week and be with your people, Lord, and help us, Lord, to lift our eyes up to you that dwell in heaven. Behold, as the eyes of your servants look to you, Lord, use your servant today to deliver your word to us. Help us to receive your word and to understand it and to apply it um, so we may live in a way that we could win people to you for your glory and your honor. Um, I pray that you would uh, bless your people today and help us to focus on you today. And um, I'm grateful and thankful to you for this day, Lord. We love you. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And this, of course, is a, an account of Jesus' triumphal entry. And uh, I love the way that, um, that Peter, in his epistle, describes the earthly ministry of Jesus. He, he says in there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he says... To them it was revealed, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, that not to them, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things, these things that were reported, he says, these things which angels desire to look into. So the way he describes the gospel. So this event here, you, you have the eyes of all of Jerusalem on Jesus. But I think what is even more astounding throughout his entire ministry, but here I think this brings it to really, this is a, sort of a focal point in his earthly ministry before the cross. His heaven is attentive to all of these magnificent events. And now as he enters Jerusalem, everyone is there. And what we're going to see first, we're going to take a look at the setting itself. An explanation of this entry, because John gives us an explanation, and then various responses. So the setting, an explanation, and then various responses. Let's read the text first. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That's the setting. Then Jesus, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He explains. There we have an explanation. Now the responses. His disciples didn't understand the things at first. 
But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. The setting itself now. It's pretty amazing that the, the language uh, John uses here. He says that a great multitude was there. Josephus, writing um, A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, he describes the Passover uh, just before the Jewish war. And he says there were 2.7 million approximately people that took part. That is a lot of people. And he's not counting the defiled and the foreigners who were present in the city. He's just speaking about those who were allowed into the, the temple complex to actually worship. I, I mean, it, unbelievable amount of people. Uh, this was a great multitude of people. And as word is going around, remember, listen, listen to what it says, that those in verse 17, they bore witness those who knew that Lazarus had been raised from the dead, they bore witness. They were, they were talking about, hey, this is the guy. He's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. He was dead four days and he, he just spoke a word and the man came out of the tomb alive. So all of these crowds are surrounding Jesus and, and they take palm branches and they start waving these palm branches and screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, of course, we read this and we think to ourselves, these are devotees, these are followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the case. You know, when, whenever there's a crowd, you know what a crowd does? A crowd attacks, attracts a crowd. And that's really what's happening here. One commentator, particularly about these palm branches, one commentator writes that about two centuries earlier, palm branches had already become a national symbol for the nation of Israel. Kind of like, you know, Canada has the maple leaf. Similar to that. Um, during the rededication of the temple in AD uh, 164, in Jewish uh, literature, the people, when they gathered together for the rededication of the temple, they had wreaths and then palm fronds, and they offered hymns of thanksgiving to God while they were waving these palm fronds. So it was, this was a tradition. And then when they defeated the Syrians and they gathered together, on the 23rd day of the second month, the Jews, they entered into the city with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and string instruments and with hymns and songs because the great enemy, the Assyrians, had been removed from Israel. 
So this was more than anything else, just basically a tradition. We don't really have anything similar to this in the United States with plants, but you know, on the Fourth of July, fireworks, right? It's it's sort of a, a custom and a tradition, a tradition to celebrate that day. And this is what palm uh, fronds were used for. But in the book of Revelation, what's interesting is that we get an image of this also in heaven. So in the book of Revelation, in chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, in Revelation, and, and remember, John is the same, this is the same author. Same author, John uh, writes in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, that's the same word, a great multitude, this vast number of people, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what do we learn from, from a passage like this? You know, external worship if you think about Revelation uh, in particular first, we think about Revelation 7. External worship is a very vital part of worshiping God. So if when we were singing, everybody just kind of, you know, stood like this and with a very monotone voice sang, it, it, it doesn't evoke a picture of a people who have been redeemed from their sins and are worshiping the God of heaven, Right? Now, there's various traditions, and some people, you know, that they would, they would never even raise their hands in worship. But external worship is important. But external worship can also be artificial. You know, pomp, circumstance, tambourines, dancing, crying, swaying, raising your hands, a loud voice. Those things, that, that kind of externalism isn't necessarily uh, connected to true worship those things are just uh, circumstantial right and they are not intrinsically tied to the true worship of God so when you see that large crowds excitement don't be fooled don't be fooled by those things a true worship is always connected to, as Revelation 7, 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. True worship springs from a heart that knows their need for a Redeemer, a Savior. And many of these people, what they were looking for was a political figure. They were looking for a king of Israel who would destroy the Romans and then lead them in military conquest. True worship arises from a heart that has been redeemed and that knows its Savior, God, and the Lamb. Now next, they, they, they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. And literally, it, literally it means give salvation now. See, so, so it sounds like what they're saying is save us. 
but they don't mean save us from our sins. And that's not what they're asking for. They're asking, they're, deliver us from the, the tax demon, <laughs> right? Our property taxes are unbelievable under the Romans, and we need some relief. That's what they're asking for. They're not asking for the redemption of their soul. And this, this psalm, uh, this comes from a, a psalm that was interpreted messianically. Let, turn, uh, you can listen or turn to Psalm 118, and it's towards the end of the psalm. This is a psalm that has that refrain, no, um, not unto us, but unto you we give the glory. And in verses 25 through 26, we, we read these words. Save us now. That's the Hosanna. Save us now. I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And this was um, when the, the people sang together. This was one of the psalms that they would sing as a plea for God to send the Messiah to them, particularly to Jerusalem, because they knew that this was part of the fulfillment of their messianic hope when the Messiah would enter the city. And this is messianic hope that it had been revolving around Jesus for a long time, just in the Gospel of John. If we just take a look at the Gospel of John, in John six fourteen. The people are already, they're seeing the signs, they're seeing the things that Jesus is doing. In John 6, 14, then men, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, truly this is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountains by himself alone. You see, their desire for Jesus to rule them had nothing to do with their need of spiritual redemption. It just had to do with the signs, the miracles he was performing. So, earthly. They, they, what they were doing was they were attaching their earthly hopes to Jesus. And as long as this guy can do these things for me here on earth, I'm going to follow him. In chapter 11, uh, after, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the Jewish leaders want him dead, the people, their, their hopes for Christ, because of what he's done, had increased. So beginning at verse 54 there in chapter 11, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they sought Jesus. As they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Right? They, were, they were interested. They, they wanted Christ to be with them. They sought him. They were looking for him. But they weren't looking for him to be the savior of their souls. So here, all of this triumphal entry, it, it, when the believer reads this, there's this sense where there is an exaltation of Christ. It's not 
true worship. This is not a true exaltation of Christ because it's mingled with all of these earthly affections. And this is something that the believer constantly, uh, individually, and then of course as churches, we have to learn how to distinguish these things. What is true worship and what is false worship? True worship is always tied to the redemption of the soul. False worship always has to do with things that are temporal. Either the excitement of the thing, right? Lights dim, you know, or maybe lights flashing and a big band and people playing excessively loud music, right? And they're dressed in ripped jeans and they've got tattoos and earrings now. <laughs> you know, whatever, right? Uh, that is, is, it's exciting, right? Or maybe even just large crowds, Right, just large crowds of people. And oh, this must be true. This must be of God because there's a lot of people there. No. True worship is always tied to and there may be large crowds. Hey, and you know what? There may be excessively loud music. Right? There might be. But if it's not tied to worship, worship of the Lamb because of the redemption of our souls. It's not true worship. If it's not an overflow, as the Heidelberg Confession puts it, if it's not an overflow of thankfulness to God for the deliverance that we've received, it's not true worship. Listen, and, and, and you can see how this is not true hope. It's not, these people did not have genuine hope in Christ. Just look at verse 17. Therefore the people... Who were with him when, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason, because Jesus did this miracle, for this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Oh, this guy raises people from the dead. Uh, let me shake his hand. Right? It's like seeing a celebrity somewhere in, in, a, in a convenience store. Can I get a picture with you? Right? or a singer, or whatever it might be. That's the only reason they wanted to be around Christ. It wasn't because he was the savior of the world. Look at uh, chapter 18 and verse 39. And the, the, the truth here is just astounding. So Jesus now is, he's in the custody of the Romans and he is going to be crucified. And you would think 2.7, let's just, just say a million. There were a million people there and 500,000 of those people were screaming and they had pom poms, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're just excited because he's the king. And now Pilate parades, he's beaten, he's a, they've beat him to a bloody pulp. He's basically naked and just, you know, they have ashamed him. He's not ashamed, right? He despises the shame, right? When he was heading to the cross, he was looking ahead to what he would receive. And he despised it, but he's being shamed, as it were. And he's standing there. And these 500,000 Jews who were just screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. Verse 39, but you have a custom, 
that I should release someone to you at the Passover. This is not like months later. This is days. This is the same week. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? That's what they were just saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. You want me to release him? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man. No. No, not at all. You see, so, so this, this, kind, this kind of external worship, there's, there's, there's no, there was no value to it. Nobody gained anything. What it served to do more than anything else was to condemn the hypocrisy of this people. And it does the same today. For, so corporately for churches who do it, who put on a show for the sake of just drawing a crowd, right? They're not going to be controversial. And, and basically what you're getting is you're getting self-help, right? You're just coming and you're getting a little bit of a Dr. Phil sprinkled with Bible verses. You're getting Oprah with scripture, right? That's what you get when you come to these churches. And you know, people like that. That's what some people want. They just want to just give me a little pep. I just want a little pep talk, a little assistance. Don't give me too much Jesus Christ, my sin. Don't call people out on their hypocrisy. I don't want to hear that. That's very, you know, I'm too refined for those things. Um, but you see, it's that attitude that gives birth to that. And when people, they compromise uh, for the sake of keeping people in their churches, churches don't become houses of worship anymore. So uh, they say, give us Barabbas. That's what they wanted. They wanted Barabbas. And in Matthew 25, 27, the people say, may his blood be on us and on our children. Make, we, we are willing to be guilty for the death of Jesus. Matthew 25, 27. So, although, although this scene may appear to the eyes to be absolutely magnificent, and maybe even the sounds and the images of, you know, if there's so many people, you think of, even if you had a group of 100 people with sanding side to side with these palm fronds waving, the noise would have just been unbelievable. But now... Listen to what Jesus does in, in, in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. He had sent his disciples to, to get this donkey for him. He tells them, go get this donkey. Uh, because he, of course, being the Son of God, he knew that these things would occur. So, um, so then we have the scripture here. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, his disciples brought it to him, sat on it. As it is written. Now, you know, the donkeys that they had then, the donkeys in the Middle East, were, they were a little bit more prestigious. It's not like a hee-haw, hee-haw kind of, you know, this, <laughs> you know, from a cartoon. It was actually a, a more robust, a stronger animal, and it was actually a sign of your wealth. Right? So they could be categorized. So exam for example, when Abraham's wealth is described or the patriarchs or others, the number of donkeys that they had is usually included. So this wasn't just some, you know, dumb, smelly creature, right? 
And it wasn't necessarily a sign. Some people say this, well, he was on a donkey instead of a horse because of his humility. No, it was actually a very prestigious, strong animal. Um, So he is on top of this thing, and this fulfills Scripture. This text is from Zechariah 9.9. And listen to the text. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So fear not. Have no fear. What You see, the, but these people's fears were tied primarily to their earthly existence. When their fears should have been tied to their, their own sin, their, their need for redemption. And Jesus knows that he is going to be betrayed In a few days, he's going to be betrayed. He is going to be uh, falsely accused of committing sins. He is going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. And this is the scripture that is chosen. Fear not, daughter of Zion. He's riding into that city with no fear, knowing he is going to be crucified. Because what he is going to accomplish is the eternal redemption of his people. He knows who he is. He is the king of Israel, and he is riding on that donkey, receiving false worship. He knows it's false worship, yet he does it with not a bit of shame. You would think that he would maybe be upset by their hypocrisy, but this is part of the shame that he has to endure. I love, I want to read the text in Hebrews, because um, it's in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2, the author says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. This was shameful. What, 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 these, what these people did here, this is a, just a, a horrendous thing to do. If a president or maybe somebody important came into town and uh, there was mock, a, a mock ceremony, intended to shame him. Let's say, let's say he was a, a Republican president and uh, 200,000 uh, folks dressed in blue showed up, right? And they're all applauding and cheering him. Wouldn't, that, that would be taken as a, as a very shameful thing, disrespectful even, right? Or if he was a, a Democratic president and just 200,000 people dressed in red, are standing there. Well, these people, they're, they're doing the same thing. And Jesus, he despises the shame. It doesn't bother him. Why? Because for the joy that's set before him, he endured the cross. And part of that joy is the, inter- the eternal redemption of his people. There were at least 11 people in that crowd that he was marching into that city to die for. And he did it with joy. Their responses now. Look at their responses. His disciples didn't understand these things. <laughs> it's like, they're, they're just completely oblivious. They don't, they don't understand. It's on the donkey, I guess. You know? We don't know what's going on here. right? They're, they're just completely confused. And um, 
but that's characteristic of his disciples because they, they, they don't understand. It's going to be later. It's going to be later on um, after he dies and he's raised from the dead and he gives his disciples the spirit. Remember in the Gospel of John, he breathes upon them as an act signifying that they would one day, well, shortly after this, uh, 40 days or so after the resurrection, they would receive the spirit but but then um, when they begin to preach, they uh, say things like this. Uh, um, in uh, Acts chapter 2. Beginning at verse 22. Acts 2.22. Peter says this. So they don't know in the Gospel of John, right? They're confused. All of these things are happening. People, there's this huge reception, and they may think they might be thinking to themselves, "This is it. They've accepted him as their king." But he's going to die. He knows it. They don't yet. But then, after his resurrection, listen to his disciples. Verse 22 of Acts chapter two: Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the, de- by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, which he didn't know that was happening. He, he didn't know that this was part of God's purpose, that the Messiah would have to enter into Jerusalem to be cut off from his people. Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. They don't know now, but later they will. Now look at the response of the crowns. Verse 17. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. He does signs. He does wonders. They're not bearing witness to the fact that he is the savior of the world. And now another group. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done these signs. When there isn't a clear witness about Christ, anybody will follow him. You think of pliable in the... Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, right? He's willing to follow Christ. He's willing to go on pilgrimage with Christian until he meets with difficulties. And then when he meets with difficulties, what does he say? Oh, I'm out of here. This is not for me. I'm going back to the city of destruction. Now, one of the, uh, what does Paul say to the disciples as he's circling back around on his second missionary trip? He's going back to all of these churches in the book of Acts. He says to them, through many tribulations, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not through ease and comfort. You see, the Christian life is a call to discipleship. Jesus said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. It is a call to follow Jesus through good and through bad. And honestly, it's the bad that really proves whether a person is a Christian or not. How will you deal with life when there is great difficulty Will you depend upon the Savior? Will you trust Him? I, like how, I love how James puts it. 
in James chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Very, various, many different kinds of trials. Physical, physical, your, your physical health. The doctor gives you a bad diagnosis. He's saying, count it all joy. He doesn't mean go throw a party. But you greet these difficulties with joy in your heart. Not only because you have a greater hope, but this is why. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. There is this endurance and perseverance now of the soul. Because you've, you hold on to these promises that are greater. Financial difficulties, relationship difficulties, political difficulties, vaccine difficulties, whatever you want. Any kind of difficulty that comes into your life. Pandemic difficulties. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally without reproach. You see, they were re- willing to receive Christ. That is why when we preach the gospel from this pulpit, it has to, you have to preach the gospel clearly. That's why when you talk to people about being a Christian, you have to communicate these things to them with accuracy. I'm not talking about perfectly. You can fumble and bumble and stumble. But as long as you're communicating essential truths to people, right? God is righteous. You are a sinner. You need a savior. Christ is that savior. You must believe in him. You must repent of your sins and you must count the cost to follow Christ. We have to explain these things accurately so that when people come to him, he's not just coming to fix my marriage or fix my financial difficulties or fix this, Jesus, or fix that or do this miracle or I need... No, they're coming to him because he is the savior of the world. He's their redeemer. If not... Whatever false reason you put before people, that is why they will meet with him. But then those who oppose him, they hate even this. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're still bitter. They don't care. False, they hate when there's false worship and they can't distinguish the two. But believers, although they may be confused, in time they will come to understand with the disciples that all of this mockery and all of this shame, this is a very shameful, you know, we read this, this is a very shameful event. But Christ approaches it knowing exactly what he will accomplish. Therefore, he does it with his head held high in confidence to God. So, brothers and sisters, in light of these things, let us uh, pray and ask God to uh, bless the preaching of his word. Pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for the opportunity of gathering together this morning and worshiping you. What a joy it is, Lord God, to, uh, to worship you with your people. We ask that you would please bless the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.